Good morning, everybody. Well, as Martin said, today we reach the fourth um, part of our series, the last in this series, um, Address the Mess. And I don't know about you, but my memory is really bad nowadays. So I thought it'd be good just to recap where we've been so far in this series, because we're going to bring some of the themes and ideas together um, this morning. Um, so in the first week, we um, took the theme, the mess in the mirror. Uh, we're encouraged to admit the mess in our lives rather than ignore it. Um, the second theme, I think the summary is going to come up in a moment. Um, the second theme was headed hope in the mess. And Becky reminded us that Jesus invites messy people um, to follow him. And last Sunday, Phil um, reminded us that God wants to transform us. Um, from the inside out, because although God loves us as we are, he loves us too much to leave us where we are. And today we come to our fourth session. It looks like the PowerPoint slides have gone. <laughs> Should we just wait and see if they catch up? Just give a moment. If not, we'll ignore them. They're not going to work this morning, no, okay. So um, you'll have to listen even more intently to me this morning then. Um, so anyway, today we're going to our fourth um, session, and I've been given this title, An Unmentionable Mess. An Unmentionable Mess. Now, when I told my mum this was the title, she said, you better not say anything then. <laughs> so I'm going to ignore her advice for once in my life. Um, but I've got to be honest with you, when I came and looked at this title, I felt really uncomfortable, because um, I don't know what comes to your mind um, when you think about that, that, that sort of um, heading, an unmentionable mess. Um, but I found myself becoming a bit red in the face, because all I could think about were all those messy moments in my life that I rather forget, and I certainly don't want you to know about them. The unmentionable moments when I've really, really messed up and got things so badly wrong that I can't even believe those things actually happened and that I was involved in them. And so I've sort of altered the title a little bit for this morning, just very, very slightly, Marty, would be pleased to know. I've just added a question mark behind that title. So, an unmentionable mess, question mark? You see, I don't think it is inevitable that our lives become so, so messy that we never want to talk about them. I want to, us to think, is there a way to ensure that our messy stories don't become so embarrassing for us that we never want to talk about them? How can we ensure that messiness is not all that we come remembered for, all that we're known for? If you'd like, is there anything we can do to ensure that our messy lives don't become unmentionable because they become even more messy than they already are. And the lens that we're going to think about this is a small part of an Old Testament story contained in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapters 24 to 26. Um, and I've been a tad rebellious again this morning, um, though perhaps that trait in me is responsible for the messiness in my life, maybe. Um, but I've been a bit rebellious because I was actually given just 
chapter 24 to look at this morning. Um, but I'm convinced that chapters 24 to 26 in 1 Samuel are what I would call a literary unit. In other words, the meaning of these chapters is found more in the whole, looking at these three chapters together, than by looking at them apart. And so we're going to look at three chapters, not just one. Um, and um, it's even worse news for you if you're thinking about your Sunday lunch, because I think we have to start with an even wider focus, because we have to understand that these chapters come in a larger narrative contained in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and this narrative in these two books, as we like to think of them, has some overarching themes which make the content of these chapters a lot more clear and understandable. So I want to emphasise these three themes that I'm glad you can now see um, on the screen for you. And it is these. First, you can't understand the books of Samuel if you don't remember that the writer's perspective is that God is king over all the earth. Now, that might not be your perspective, but it is the perspective of the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel. In other words, 1 and 2 Samuel is a theological work. God is the central figure. And secondly, therefore, human kings are down in the pecking order, if you like. They are God's servants. Their role is not self-promotion, but rather to make God's rule known. And the third thing to bear in mind here in these um, chapters, these books, um, they are named after a prophet, the prophet Samuel, who acts as God's mouthpiece. He makes known God's word to the earthly kings. He is a means of communicating um, with the kings. Now, all that's important as we come to 1, and two, 1 Samuel 24 to 26, because in these chapters we find that David is restrained by his awareness that even as king-elect, he cannot act beyond his remit because his God is the ruler supreme. So in these chapters, we encounter messiness in David's life, but we find that in that messiness, David has a framework that enables him to de-escalate rather than escalate the messiness. And by the time we get to chapters 24 to 26 of 1 Samuel, the messy stage has been set in the narrative up until this point. Saul, Israel's first king, is full of jealousy and paranoia and fear, and it seems that David is the cause. You see, David has seen, sorry, Saul has seen David heroically defeat a terrifying warrior named Goliath that some of you might have heard about, and he has heard the people celebrating that victory. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul has become very angry. It says in chapter 18, verse 8, the refrain from the people displeased him greatly. Bit of an understatement, really. Ate away at him inside. He is, it's a messy situation because Saul has lost all perspective. He has already made one attempt to take David's life, hurling the spirit him. And in chapters 19 to 23, so just before we get to our chapters, David's on the run, taking cover, hiding in the caves and in the hills. And by the time we reach chapter 24, Saul has amassed 3,000 men to hunt down David. Surely they will overcome this young upstart king in waiting. Well, as fate would have it, Saul walks unawares, 
into the very cave where David is with his men. And David has the opportunity to creep up on Saul and kill him. But he doesn't do so. Instead, he just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and allows Saul to leave the cave unharmed. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 24, um, beginning at verse 8. Um, and I think we're going to find this on the slides. If not, you might want to turn to it in your Bible. So this is um, 1 Samuel 24, beginning to read at verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands. But I did not kill you. I did not lay my hand on you. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. We jump to verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. David didn't take the chance he had to kill Saul. And this unexpected restraint has disarmed Saul, and Saul is weeping. Have you ever wondered what might have happened instead if David had taken Saul's life? How would Saul's army have reacted? What might Samuel, God's mouthpiece, have said to David? How might David himself have felt? Now, I dare to imagine, not least based on what David writes in some of the Psalms that he wrote, that David took a different path because he knew this, and this is on the screen for you. Uh, messiness can lead to more mess if we forget we live life in God's presence. Messiness can lead to more mess if we forget we live life in God's presence. You see, David took the virtuous option in this chapter, the option not to harm Saul, his enemy. Perhaps he realised that otherwise he would create the perfect breeding ground for more and more and more mess. Someone has said you can't stop a flood with more water. Instead, David needed to erect a flood barrier. David didn't want to usurp God's role. He didn't want to act dishonourably. Instead, he championed virtue, doing what was right over getting immediate results. I think David realised that bad options are never the right ones because he remembered that he lived life in God's presence. And I think that doubling down on messiness only increases the mess. It releases more damage in our lives and community. And I know that's what happens because on occasions that's exactly what I've done. 
I've sinned, I've doubled down on messiness. Some years ago, a friend of mine reflected on his own rather messy life story. Um, There were painful circumstances in his close family, and his own life had been regularly interrupted by his own disturbing and unpredictable bipolar episodes. And he said this, we hope that the difficulties in life that we have experienced have made us better, not bitter people. We hope the difficulties in life we have experienced have made us better, not bitter people. He was conscious of the temptation, I think, to create more mess by heaping bitterness into his messy life. But realising his life was lived in the presence of God had led him and his wife and his family to commit to more positive outcomes. You see, awareness of living life in God's presence provides us with practical restraints to how we deal with life's messiness. When that restraint is forgotten or dismissed or ignored, situations like we see in Ukraine and other war-torn places, domestic murders, more scandals in public life, I think we've heard about another one this morning on the news, relationship breakdowns are the result as mess is added to messiness, and messiness spirals out of control. Saul is an example of someone who schemes up more messiness. And the Old Testament is full of such stories. You might think of Haman in the book of Esther, um, or Joseph's brothers um, in the early chapters of the Bible. And perhaps it's worth us noting that in each of these cases, jealousy, pride, greed, ambition were the start And then the bad option is taken of stoking the jealousy, and that leads to more destructive, unmentionable mess. We've already mentioned at the end of chapter 24, Saul weeps. He is disarmed by David's virtue. We've read part of his words. You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me, says Saul. I know that you surely will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. There's a turnaround there, from Saul hunting down David to Saul realising that David's life was in God's hands. It's as if the reality of God's presence has not just hit, hit David and stopped him from doing what was wrong, but it's also hit Saul, because David himself was aware of God's presence. Saul becomes aware of God's presence and gains a new perspective. You see, David had chosen that virtuous option. He made the first move towards Saul to try and clear away the debris of misunderstanding and paranoia. Why do you listen to what men say? You see the evidence yourself, David says to Saul. Virtuous options are the means of clearing up the mess. It's, of course, the way Jesus himself chose when he was confronted with the mess of the first century justice system and the mess and sin of the world. For God in Christ made the first move towards us. And we, like Saul and David, live in the presence of the king, the king, the king of heaven and earth. And we, like they, even when we're confronted with overwhelming mess, need to live accordingly. But I want you to also notice this. Messiness can lead to permanent despair if we forget that we live under God's providence. Now, what do I mean by providence? Well, just that we believe that God's will and purpose orders the world. 
that he is in control of the timings of events in this world because he is king. Because he is king, the world is ordered according to God's will and purpose, and he is in control of its timing. That's the perspective of the writer of this Old Testament story. Again, it might not be your perspective, but it is the perspective of this biblical narrative. We've seen David took the virtuous option because he realised he lived life in God's presence, but he also took the trust option. To trust is a remedy to taking justice into our own hands. To trust means we believe that God is ultimately in control, that his purposes will be fulfilled. And therefore, there's no need for us to take matters in our own hand. And here I want us to look at these three chapters, chapter 24 to 26 in 1 Samuel, to develop this, how the, and look at how these chapters develop this theme of trust and God's providence. We haven't got an awful lot of time, so all I can do is look, pick out just moments in these three chapters. You might be glad to hear that because um, I will be here a very long time. Um, but the first comes in chapter 24 in verse 4, um, where we pick up the words of David's men when they first spot Saul entering the cave where David has this numerical and positional advantage. So this comes before the passage that we read earlier. This is when Saul first enters the cave and the, the men... David's men say to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Have you ever wondered what happened between the two parts of this verse? Part one, David's men are urging him to kill Saul and David begins to creep up on Saul. In part two, David reaches Saul and then he cuts off a bit of his rope. This wasn't what the men were expecting. They were expecting bloodshed. And I just wonder if David had a moment of realisation as he crept towards Saul. I'm about to kill the king, God's anointed king. This is how I will be remembered Forever. That would be the unmentionable story of my life. Listen to what David says to rebuke his men in verse 6. God forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. David realised he needed to wait for God to act. He needed to trust that God was in control. But David had a further lesson to learn about God's purpose and timing in chapter 25. And this is what I mean about these three chapters working together as a unit um, within the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel has now died, and the warning lesson comes from a lady, Abigail, the wife of Nabal. And David has protected Nabal's property, but Nabal's responded by throwing insults at David. And David is angry and tempted to respond with violence. Listen this time to Abigail's words to David in these verses 28 to 31 of chapter 25. And just a word of explanation to those of you who might be only listening and not looking at the screen. This passage can be a bit confusing if you just listen to it. Because as you might notice, if you are looking at the screen, there's a repeated use of the English word Lord. That word in this passage refers to both David, the earthly king, 
and God, the Lord, the King over heaven and earth. And the rule of thumb, if you're just listening, is that when you hear my Lord, that's Abigail's title of honour um, for David. Okay? I hope that explains just a little bit. So let's read what Abigail says to David here. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies you hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Now, what has Abigail done here? She has reminded David not to make the mess worse. She has reminded him that God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for, for David, that the Lord will fulfill every good thing he has promised for David. And then note those wonderful words of hope and consolation to David, that his life is wrapped up in the purposes of God. Your life will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. A reminder to David that God has plans for him, and therefore he lives in God's protective custody. I like that phrase. He lives in God's protective custody. And you know, in this case, David doesn't have to wait much longer. God's time to act comes quickly. In verse 38 of that same chapter, just a few verses later, we read, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God is indeed in control, David learns. David can trust in his Lord. As we move on to chapter 26, um, now, this is an interesting chapter because some commentators have suggested this is just a rewrite of chapter 24. It's the same event, just a slightly different account of it. The same um, event is that Saul is pursuing David. But I think there's some clear new emphases in chapter 26, which point to how these chapters work, if you like, to a crescendo to show that David's rise and Saul's fall are both in line with God's providential purposes. First, in chapter 26, verse 4, David takes the initiative to send out spies to see what Saul is up to. And that's a bit of a change from, from chapter 24. If you like, the tables are beginning to turn. David is now taking the protect, proactive steps um, rather than Saul now. And David has a second chance in this chapter to kill Saul, who is asleep. But again, David refuses to do so. Note this time David's confident words to Abisha in verse 10. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike Saul, or his time will come and he will die. It sounds to me as if the lessons of the previous two chapters, including the death of Nabal, is ringing in David's ears. He's now confident that God will act in his time, in his way. But just in case we miss the emphasis, look what the narrator, the writer of the story, and says himself in verse 12. No one saw or knew anything about it. That's David going into Saul's camp. Nor did anyone wake up. 
they were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. The writer is making a point. He wants us to note that the Lord is working with David now. He's protecting David's interest. The Lord is protecting the one who'd refused to assume that he could act in a treacherous way to bring about God's purposes. And the tables have turned because David's learned to confront mess with virtue and with trust. You might know the end of the story. Five chapters later, um, Saul dies at the hands of the Philistines and David has no bloodshed on his hands, just like he did with Nabal's death and just as Abigail predicted. And David emerges from these three chapters as the one who trusted in God's providential work. And the messiness of Israel's political life, led by Saul, who was an unstable king, comes to an end as David ascends to the throne and Saul himself predicts this at the end of chapter 26. David, my son, you will do great things and surely triumph. David, my son, you will do great things and surely triumph. And so we end our look at these chapters on an optimistic note as David, who recognises that God is the king he serves, becomes king. And that leads to the final main point this morning. Messiness can be redeemed if we remember that in Christ we find God's provision. Messiness can be redeemed if we remember that in Christ we find God's provision. Now that looks like a bit of a jump, doesn't it? How do we get from King David to King Jesus, if you like, to Jesus Christ? Well, that's a big story. But when David ascends to the throne, he settles in his palace. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant, an agreement a commitment to David. I like to refer to this as a covenant, a commitment of grace, undeserved love, unconditional love. That's the type of agreement that God makes with David. And God says this to David, my love will never be taken away from you as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And the promise here is that David's royal line will be established forever. And that Dave, and from David's royal line, a king was to come who would bring redemption to the whole world. He is known as King David's greater son, King Jesus. Now to be redeemed means to be delivered from the harm of something, to de be delivered from the consequences of something, and that's what the big story of the Bible is surely all about. Hear this, a catastrophic mess ultimately becomes the means for dealing with our human mess once and for all. And so as we reflect on the grace option, the options we have to accept God's grace, God's unconditional and undeserved love, for messed up people just like us. We realise that God's grace was ultimately revealed in Jesus. You see, God's gift to the messy world is ultimately not a human king, but King Jesus, the son of God himself. God's people had to wait through many years of very difficult times for Jesus, the transformer of life's 
to be revealed. But now, in our darkest moments, the good news of King Jesus and his transforming presence and power can shine bright and most brilliant in our darkest moments. And so I want to um, wrap up this by asking you, how are you addressing your mess? Your response to the mess in your life story becomes your life story. But it's never too late to turn our backs on mess escalation and move towards mess de-escalation. The question is, what framework are you working from? Now, some of you might not believe that God is present with you and in control of this world, but you can still choose virtuous options that limit the mess. But for the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel and for David, an awareness of God's presence and rule had practical consequences. What's your framework? Will you choose to exercise virtue over expediency or tra place trust over self-reliance or accept redeeming grace over all your life's mess? It's a big question. I want to finish by reading some words from Romans 12. And when I read these verses, I, I had this um, little thought. I can't help wondering if 1 Samuel 24 to 26 were in the writer's mind. That might be heretical, but I sometimes look at New Testament passages and try and think, I wonder what was in the writer's mind when he wrote this down. So in this letter um, to the church at Rome, um, Paul, an early Christian missionary and letter writer, tells Christ's followers that they are co-heirs with Christ, that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Similar message to what David heard in the covenant that was made with him. And Paul spells out the practical consequences of living in Christ and in God's kingly presence. And this is what he says. This is from Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. It's mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The reality of Jesus' presence and grace supersedes the reality of life's mess. With him, we can learn to live life in less messy ways because of God's abundant provision of grace. Paul says that abundant provision of grace overflows to the many, overflows to us all. And you know, there's greater hope here too. There is good news for us of eternal duration because our messiness surely beckons us to glimpse a future kingdom, the hope of creation renewed in perfect wholeness. Our lives need not remain unmentionable messes forever. Instead, they can be transformed. And our testimony, our eternal story, can instead sing out the praise of Christ, our Redeemer and ever-reigning King. May our lives be lived in the light of God's presence, God's providence, and his redeeming grace revealed in Jesus. And therefore, to echo the words of Abigail to David, 
May we confidently know this morning that our messy, yet mentionable life stories are indeed eternally bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord our God. May that become our song, our song of praise, and the joyful testimony of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you feel about your life story? Are there parts you don't want to mention or even think about ever again? What practical steps can you take to remind yourself that you live in God's presence? easy is it for you to believe that God's purpose for you will be fulfilled despite the mess you find yourself in? In what ways does Jesus bring you hope in the messiness that you face today? <laughs> 